everyone. Welcome to episode 125 of Greater Than Code. And I'm here with my fabulous, beautiful, wonderful, crazy, awesome co-host, Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Thank you, Janelle. And I am here, right here, with Avdi Griff. Yes, I am Avdi, and I am very, very, very thrilled today to be here with our guest, Sam Aaron. Uh, I first met Sam, I was at a conference in New Orleans, and, you know, it was conference, 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 code, code, code all day. And then after all the conferencing was done, there was a party at the aquarium. And in the aquarium, there was this guy creating electronic beats live using Ruby up there on the stage with his laptop with like the, the code projected on the wall. And it was fabulous. And I actually got to dance at that conference and it made me so happy. And uh, since then, I have I've had the great pleasure to to get to know Sam a little bit better at, at some other conferences. And he makes music with code. And not only does he make music with code, but he uses that as a way to get kids into coding. And I just I love everything that he is doing. So Sam, I am so so happy that you have joined us today. Uh, how on earth do I uh, follow from that? Thank you very much, Abdi. I know how. I know how. You <laughs> tell us what is your superpower and how did you acquire it. I think probably it is the ability just to stare at the same problem for days until oh. I solve it and not give in. I think that when I tell the kids how to code, that's really when they say, what do we need to learn to code? Like we just say a, a, a lot of patience and also, yeah, uh, the ability to delay self-gratification as well. So mm-hmm. to know that I will feel good in maybe a month <laughs> if I keep on this every day. So, yeah, that's my special power. This is how you got into academia. I think it's how I got into programming in general. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. But I'm now actually no longer in academia. Yeah. Uh, you won. You, you, you <laughs> beat academia, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on which side you're looking at. But yes. Well, you have a PhD. There's always a half full cup. Yeah, I do have a PhD, yes. I can definitely see those things going together, though, like patience and delayed ratification and like research problems. I definitely have this research gravity myself of like easily getting obsessed and staying with a problem because of that continuous stream of gratification that comes as you get clarity and kind of understand things. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you thought about your poles in the world, like what is your gravity toward what problems just like fire you up inside? That's interesting. So, I mean, I would I would have broke, broken those into two separate things. I think that the delayed gratification thing, I think absolutely it does lend itself to a kind of academic mindset. But additionally, I think it really just describes a programmer. Most programmers really just sit in front of things until they work. So that's just a general sense. But in terms of programming in, its, in, in the areas that I find interesting, uh, I'm particularly interested in seeing programming as a form of communication to converse with a computer or with others through uh, the medium of programming itself uh, and what that can offer in terms of, of the kinds of things you can communicate and also the kind of uh, frictions or the sort of the speeds of the communication. I think that those are really two different interesting dimensions to explore when you're considering programming as communication. I would be curious to hear more about examples of, of programming languages or programming idioms that aren't so much a conversation and idioms that you think are more conversational. I think this everything is conversational. Okay, actually, I think that yeah, I'm not sure. Is, if that's is the there anything that sort of that in your mind smooths the way to the conversation? Yeah, I think first of all, just standing back and thinking of what you're doing when you're programming of any kind, explicitly as a sort of communicative exercise. Mm. I think that can shed new kinds of light on on what you're doing. 
It's not always the right thing to do, obviously, but there's, it's useful in certain situations. And when you do start to think of it as, as communication, you start asking, well, who am I communicating to? How effective is that? Are they likely to understand? How can I test that they understand? How can I verify? Like when you're talking to other humans, hopefully you spend a lot of time ver- verifying that the person's understanding what you're saying and not being offended or their, their focus is in, in a way that you are hoping to push it so that you, the communication is effective. Or if you're not, if you're just trying to communicate just to have fun, like to, to be aware of that as well, like not, to, there's no necessarily any content in the message, just it's more body language or just excitement or laughter. When you explicitly you see programming as a form of communication, I think that sheds new lights that helps you understand things in slightly different ways. Mm. To, to take it from the really abstract to something a bit more concrete, one of the things I tend to try and do is to think about in that, in the particular thing I'm communicating, what are the things which are not going to change very much? And what are the things which are likely to change a lot? And to mm. try and find that distinction, because I think that's really always a critical thing. Uh, because once you can agree on some things which are constants in the common conversation or in the domain, I think that allows the, the fluid things to be much more fluid. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so like in domain-driven design, when you establish a model and you lay out some definitions within the context of our discussions here, this has a specific meaning and this has a specific meaning. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Once you do that, then the rest of the flowing stuff just flows around that much more fluidly. But of course, then I go back to Avdi's point about what's more or less communicative. I think that's actually a really interesting question would be what kinds of things have a lot of static things, a lot of those defined, unmovable, immutable things, and which are the concepts have a lot of movable things and to mm. understand what you're, what you're working with in, in which particular context. Mm. I mean, this also can apply to like very loosely, and I'm not, I don't want to even get down to, uh, to wars of, of static versus dynamic and typing versus non-typing. But I think these oh. things also become a part of this discussion as well. I think that like, if you're doing a formal proof, there's not many moving parts there often once you've defined it, mm-hmm. for example. A proof, but, types, tests, all of these hold something still. Yes, absolutely. And they all, all can be used in, in a, a, a means of communication. And knowing which things are fluid and which ones aren't can really help your process. What is fluid? So, like for example, uh, another example. So I had a, when I was working in industry, I had a client who'd come in every week and describe parts of his system, of their system. And those descriptions, they changed, obviously, dramatically every week, and they weren't consistent. So in my head, a, a professional programmer, which I clearly wasn't and probably never will be, would have sat down and said, right, you must now define all this stuff in one place and we'll <laughs> write it down and then we'll sign a contract. And if you want to deviate from it, then it's going to be a rewrite of the contract and it's going to incur different costs, for example, or it will incur different time frame for the project. So you need to really define what it is. And I, I knew that if we did that process, it would be a complete disaster. And the, the project would require that thing to be rewritten and it would be disastrous for everybody. So instead, what I did was I, I remembered all our conversations and I figured out which parts of the conversations actually didn't change across each week. Mm. And I sat down with him and I said, these things here, are you sure these will never change? He's like, absolutely sure. He was actually, because they were so obvious to him, they were static. And I, then I then built a language around those constant things that was much more fluid. And then he was enabled to change the system prior to launch and during uh, after launch, uh, mm. based on uh, being able to, to write something which was much more close to his language and his domain. So this is a more DSL-style approach. But yeah, having an understanding of what aspects of, of his communication were fairly constant and then pinning them down, I guess in sort of a DDD-style approach, yeah, really helped. So that's a bit more concrete on what I'm trying to say. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, I used to think that as a programmer, it was my job to get the requirements and to get the business to tell me what should happen in every corner case. (laughs) And I really annoyed some people doing that. And now I get it, that there's always conflicting requirements. Yeah, I'm changing. Yeah, it's a negotiation. It's a conversation. And, And in that case, it's this running software itself that's communicating to the business so that they can then communicate what needs to be different about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, there's communications everywhere, like logs, for example. One of the first things I do when I build a new system is make the logging as good as I possibly can, because that's one way of getting the computer program to talk to me about what it's doing. I can really- ooh, ooh. Tell me what you think goes into good logging. Well, I, I can't define good for everybody, but for me, for you. Uh, uh, it's the ability to, to have the right level of verbosity and to go in to modify that. But really, all going into one central thing Ideally, in, in an ordered way, so uh, it needs to be ideally totally ordered. And, and by uh, ordered, do you mean structured, um, or do so, you mean sequential? Yeah, so it's sequential, but in a way okay. that you can sort it. You call dot sort, and it always gives you the same list. Okay, it has a deterministic order. Yeah, I mean, this is where I'm going now. So this is not what I, when I was doing my previous systems. I wasn't thinking about this when I'm logging, but logging now for me uh, is is sorted. It's totally ordered. Uh, it's deterministic in that sense. It's immutable, it's serializable, obviously, um, but also it enables things like pattern matching over it, being able to find and filter and sort these. So Kafka-like event logs, for example, fit these kinds of descriptions. And I'm working on my own for my own systems. Oh. And then, yeah, if you can serialize as well, you'll be able to... Framework? Like, yes, absolutely. So I'm actually building a new language with logging at the heart. Really? Ooh. Yeah. Have you looked at Honeycomb? No, I haven't. It kind of does this, but with events. Yeah, what, what is yeah, can you describe more? What? Honeycomb is about structured events. Yeah, and and what do you mean by event? Is that, is so, that a log? So, hey, entry? an important thing happened in the system. I mean, I, yes. I kind of like a log without the message field. It's, well, it's it's about observability, right? And Or is, I forget if that's the term. Yes, it's observability use, in but... the strictest sense. The charity actually has a pretty strong definition for it. It's been. So, I'm struggling to see any distinction between a, a log and an event at this point. Exactly. Yeah. No, 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 exactly. And one of the a, things- a log is an event with a description, and a honeycomb is an event aggregator that basically puts them all in a custom database that, that they've created so that you can query and you can index on fields that are high cardinality is the technical term, like session ID that are extremely different in a lot of cases, but you do need to, to group by those and then... Uh, you can yeah narrow and filter your your traffic in in a lot of ways, but it's, I mean an event is just a structured log without that message. Precisely, yeah, yeah. So I'm using something called Open Sound Control as my uh, current sort of mm-hmm. protocol for this. Say that again. Something called Open Sound Control. Open uh, so Sound Control. Yeah, it's, 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 it was designed to replace MIDI. So this Ooh. is like the old school in the 70s, early 80s protocol for keyboards to talk to other keyboards, essentially. Um, and that protocol is still still around today, but it has some limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, and Open Sound Control was designed to try and replace those. But actually, it turns out it's a much more useful protocol than just replacing MIDI. People are using it for ro- robotics and for controlling all sorts of cool things. Okay. Um, and it's just a very simple format. It has a, a binary protocol, so it's a binary representation, which has like a URL-style string, slash foo, slash bar, slash baz, and then a bunch of arguments, which can be strings, floats, and integers and there's some extension types. Uh, and then it defines some very simple pattern matching you can apply so you can 
You can search for subsets of these things using regular expression like things. And also what's really nice about it is that you can put these messages into what they call bundles, which you can specifically timestamp. Because I'm also really very interested in time um, for the mm. kinds of systems I work on. And so my logs really the part of the total ordering is a is actually a is a notion of logical time. It's a the ability to, to make sure that that time isn't just the current time, because that's not very deterministic, um, but some logical sense of time. Oh, okay. So like a world three time as opposed to a physical world time, because that has a lot of context dependence, like a logical, like conceptual. Mm. So yeah, like a, a, I mean, just like an integer, really. A system, yeah, like counter time as opposed to wall clock time. It's about Precisely. ordering. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. But this is for the kinds of weird systems I'm building, so I'm not saying this is so let's, let's, uh, let's What kind talk of weird about, systems are you yes, building? Let us talk about <laughs> the systems that you're building. And if we could, I would really love to, like, I'd, I'd love to start with Sonic Pi, because, I mean, that's what you are so identified with. Is that the Ruby one or the Clojure yes. one? Okay. Well, so it's all sorts of languages inside Sonic Pi. So the, the language itself that you the, the user uses is a DSL based on top of Ruby. And that's, uh, runs as little server process, which is, uh, has side effects, which send these open sound control messages out to something called Ooh. Super Collider, which is a synthesized engine. And the Super Collider synthesis engine executes synthesizers, which I've designed in Clojure using Overtone, which I had built with Jeff Rose, which is mm-hmm. a compiler which compiles Clojure data structures into these little binary synthesizer files. There's also Erlang in there for communicating with external processes, and uh, GUI is written in C++. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the Erlang bit is, is super ridiculously cool, because it was written by Joe Armstrong. So, so he was totally into Sonic Pi, and really helped out. Oh yeah, we also have bits of C, which convert open sound control to MIDI, and vice versa. If that part makes sense. But C++ for the GUI is hilarious. Are there well, yeah. like historical it, human reasons for that? Is it in QT? It's QT, although yeah. the Germans call it Qt. And the reason why I'm using that is because uh, the first cross-platform oh. and then the, the first version of Sonic Pi had to run on the Raspberry Pi 1, which is mm-hmm. a very, very low-power device. And so any web solution was totally not even beginning to be an appropriate thing. And so it had to be blazing fast. And, and so Qt is, yeah. Compiled so it's a, it's a native client for various it's, devices. Yeah, it's a yeah widget toolkit that that you can compile to pretty much anything. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's built on C So like, what what was the origin of this project? So Sonic Pi, particularly, that was as a response to a very small grant which the Broadcom Foundation uh, were trying to to get essentially get people to write something interesting for kids for the Raspberry Pi. Hmm. As it, and it was Raspberry Pi had just been launched about eight months prior. Uh, it was ludicrously successful. They were attempting to try and get more kids to program. And part of that was to create low power, but also low expense hardware, which the Raspberry Pi was, but also to then get interesting kids software to run on that that kids could use. And a lot of the software that was around that at the time wasn't really de- designed for low power devices or low CPU power devices. And so that they were, they were struggle on Raspberry Pi. And so the Raspberry Pi Foundation were giving money to uh, organizations to try and optimize their system. So Scratch, for example, they spent a lot of money on trying to optimize a small talk VM for or the, the aspects of it for the Raspberry Pi and, and give it bespoke facilities. But then Sonic Pi was an attempt to build something new. Uh, what could we build? And I was working at the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory on a different research project, which is very similar to Sonic Pi, of course. So that's, that's why it's sort of a nice segue, which was Overtone, which is my uh, weird ex- ideas uh, with along with Jeff Rose and many others, 
of trying to build the craziest, most powerful environment, language environment for creating new kinds of musical instruments. Mm. So that was both dealing with the synthesis of sound, so the mathematical properties of how you turn numbers into sound and how you manipulate those numbers, but also the interactions you might want to create from the body to those synthesizers. So you would build either physical devices or use existing off-the-shelf MIDI devices or, or open sound control devices and then network them together so the events of one device would be able to be mapped and appropriated into the synthesizers. So I was exploring Clojure because I was very interested in uh, highly dynamic languages. Ruby was, was something I was really uh, very excited about at the time, but I also tried to build early synthesizers in a concurrent fashion in Ruby. My, my concurrency skills were unbelievably mm-hmm. bad. And yeah, I've well, since learned that. Yeah, yeah, and Ruby so, doesn't yeah, help with that, right? It certainly does not. So yeah, shared uh, memory, um, yeah, threads, uh, a bad combination. And, and so anyway, Clojure offered a solution to this. It was also faster and uh, had all of the amazing JVM libraries available readily. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea about it, it talks about time in a very different way than I talk about time, um, but it had notions about uh, atomic operations on data. So data can either be this or that, and there's no in between. These kind of things really resonated with me strongly. And so I wanted to build a language on top of that and discovered that a chap called Jeff Rose had already started working on a project called Overtone. And he also lives living in Amsterdam, where I was living at the time. So we made immediate friends and then hacked on that. Uh, but Overtone had a number of problems. And I think this, these are interesting in terms of our original discussion about time and communication, mainly because you could build pretty much anything you could imagine with Overtone. It's a very powerful system for for turning ideas into musical instruments. But it takes a long time. Also requires In terms of programming time or Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and developing the skills required to be able to do that. So you can't just make a sound, you have to design a sound. What on earth does that mean? Well, I need to learn about envelopes and filters and and uh, directed graphs of computation which are describing the 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 audio pathways and all this stuff is beautiful, super interesting and I recommend anyone listening to spend time doing that if they want to. But it's a very niche or niche, as you might say, passion. And to ask the question, would you like to make an instrument? A lot, lot of people would say yes. But then if you then say, well, you then need to learn synthesis design, that's a huge barrier to entry, huge amount of friction. I could yeah, bang out a pot. For sure. That's why some people <laughs> like just going onto a piano and just opening it up, open the lid and just mm. playing, you know. And so you want that kind of level of, of immediacy. And so I'd go around and give these talks about overtone. People would get super excited. They would go to their hotel rooms and I would be able to walk down the corridors and hear their crazy sounds. But it never, ever progressed further than there uh, because no one could really do anything interesting with it. Um, I think because I didn't focus on the feedback cycle in terms of the, uh, as, a, as a process of using the system. I only thought of it in terms of a, as a developer. And when they talk about developers talk about language X versus language Y, they tend to talk about in terms of power, and that power is rarely talked about in terms of time. You might say, I can solve this thing in language X, and I can write such a structure of it that it's so it's defined to be true, or it's very hard for it not to be true, or it's very elegant, and you can clearly see that it's, it's very closely related to the language that we were working with with the business. Or There's all these lovely things, but no one ever says, but it actually took me six months to get to this point. To like be able to get that kind of power to be able to write that stuff in the language? To write the solution, to construct the solution. People oh. about the time it takes. Yeah, uh, because we can do anything in programming. Precisely. And I get so excited about all the things that I could do and that I remember that, no, I can only do a few of them. Because of time. 
and age. Yeah. This was really emphasized when I started doing live coding performances, as Abdi was saying, because when you're writing code on stage, you do not have four days. You don't have a day. You don't have an hour. You don't have half an hour. You don't have 10 minutes. You even have a minute. You have like 20 seconds. Until the, the loop comes around again. But if, yeah. Or, or, so so Measures, yeah. what kind of programs can you write in 20 seconds is an interesting question to ask. And really, it's very uh, a weird constraint. So in a way, you are like programming. Yeah, you're like the most agile programmer. <laughs> <Hyper-agile>. <laughs> what are you scripting 20 seconds long? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, that limits the kind of programs you can write in 20 seconds. It's like there's this, there's dimensions and constraints. But if we really to take it to that extreme, and what can you write in 20 seconds? Like that forces you and forces you to think about programmers' communication, and forces you to think about what kind of how do I really optimize the communication so it's it's precise enough, and but also efficient enough. And so that my system is is one of many live coding systems, and and lots of other live coding systems that explored these dimensions in different ways. So, for example, there's a system called Tidal Cycles by Alex McLean. It's a, it's a lovely language, but that's optimized for reducing numbers of key presses. So the language is very terse and very, very, as a consequently, it's very hard to read and very, well, in, in my opinion, very hard to, to look at the code and know what it's going to sound like. In the same way, I might take a bunch of spirographs and uh, to choose the different cogs. I can, I can describe which cogs I'm using, but to describe the actual output is a very difficult process because there's a lot of, yeah, just enough those uh, different wheels can produce mm. radically different spirals. Yeah. That makes yeah, any sense. So it's a, it's a simple thing to describe, but it's very hard to predict what it's going to look like. You just contrasted. I can make a solution that it's very hard or impossible to make it incorrect, but it took me six months. Proof. Versus yeah. I have something that's precise enough and gives enough feedback quickly and efficiently enough that I can write it in 20 seconds. Yes, and also I know what the the constraints are, what the, the the space of things I can actually write in twenty seconds. So obviously, I, it drastically reduces the number of things you could do in that time. But yeah, but you and then obviously a lot of cool sounds. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that, to me, that's and that's the exciting things. It really, I want to be able to express myself, and so the level of my expression for me personally as an artist is the ability to convert my thoughts into into actual resonating sounds as quickly as possible and i'm using code and other things as a way of of, of doing that which we get to convert into dancing yes <laughs> i love the i love the the sense of like an enforced tempo there i think that's a really interesting kind of constraint when when there is a a fixed tempo both both in processes of creating things and also in in software systems there are some do you mean by tempo do you mean like a repeated beat of yeah, like, like you know you're talking about 20 seconds you know which is i you this know this is not an arbitrary deadline yeah no, so to me i was describing it more as a like a, a max duration yeah like if it's longer than 20 seconds okay. that can start to, for certain parts of the music can start to irritate people because it's it just repeated right so you have to change it every 20 seconds on some parts, you want to leave for longer, for example. Mm-hmm. But you often get to a point where you're in the, yeah. in the piece and it's jarring or you know it can go in a different direction and you wanted to get it there. And then how do you get it there? So, so it is not a fixed tempo. Mm-hmm. It, it is adapted according to the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just that the context is sometimes extremely short and always under a week. <laughs> it's interesting sorry, listening sorry. to this I, I feel like Avdi's probably biased by like having conversations with me for the last week of, about clocks I'm very obsessed with clocks myself so what kind of clocks do you mean I'm I'm working on I've, I've, I've been really frustrated by 
a few different problems in the software world. And one of them that I've been working on recently is is sort of a stateful alternative architecture for doing stream flow processing and coming up with a way to do generalized zoomable structured flows. Explain what you mean by zoomable. I've got buckets of time, say, that are in hours, days, weeks, etc. And so if I think about a moment of time, I can think about that moment of time that I'm in as a small window. So I can have like a 20 minute window is my smallest increment. And then in that moment, I'm also within an hour, within a day, within a week, within a year, etc. So I can, I can have different time scales, different zoom levels, and still be at the same position with respect to uh, geometric coordinates. And the way I think about time is almost a little bit inverted with the way I have the clock set up in that I have a minimum increment of 20 minutes. And then I look at an hour as having three 20-minute increments, essentially. And so by structuring the events in terms of a time scale that starts with a minimum, I think of like a ticking metronome over time, how many, how many beats in a measure. And then if I've got three 20-minute slices, say, then that adds up to an hour. And I can aggregate up different zoom levels by looking at relative time within a particular set of coordinates. Like if I think about a quarter note, like if we think about four beats in a measure, right? And I've got these quarter notes, I think about a half note as a doubling of a quarter note. So what what does this do? I mean, I think I also think about a half note as a doubling of a quarter note. <laughs> what, how does this relate to your flows? So when we're talking about doing spirals and looking at logging in relative time, you have a set of events that happen relative to something else. So like, for example, if I start a job on a server, and I'm trying to look at the events, all the events that happen, the significance of relative time is how many ticks of the beat after I kicked off the job. So my kicking off of the server job is like a start is a beginning of a sequence. And then I count relative time from the beginning of that sequence of just one, two, three, four, five. And if I divide up beats of the measure of where stuff happens, then I've got coordinates of things. And then I can look for patterns in coordinates. You're looking for patterns. Essentially, yeah. You're looking for patterns of events in time. What do you do with them? Well, when we're talking about like making predictions, right? You're talking about. Okay. Can you give me a concrete example? Sure. So, um, I was I was just thinking with respect to like we were talking about honeycomb and monitoring and logging of of what your servers are doing. And so, if I've got a server that has, let's say, it has a bunch of job runners for things that it can kick off, and I kick off a job on my server, and it starts running. And then memory starts increasing and my memory increases at a certain rate over time. And then down the road somewhere, there's a spike. And then the next time, say the next day, I kick off the exact same job. Memory climbs for a bit. And then, you know, maybe an hour and a half goes by and then there's a spike. And so if I want to look at patterns in time, though, for that particular job, what I want to do is align all the start moments where the job kicks off and then look at the patterns in terms of sequence of events in time from that start position. So like the relative sequence relative to an event. And so I feel like with the way that we ought to be looking at clocks is the positioning of the clocks themselves, the coordinates 
are essentially like relative time within a scope. And that scope can be something that varies. So if we want to know like what are the patterns across all these server jobs, I want to look at the patterns in time and the patterns in context and how those affect the numbers so I can find out what potential cause of events might be causing that spike. At the end of the day, that's the thing I'm trying to uncover is what is the correlation of things that contributes to this spike? And those are all timing related, but they're not timing related of the server doesn't care what time is on the calendar. What the server cares about is what time the job was kicked off. So it's all relative. How much time went by since the job kicked off, I think is how we need to start measuring like the way that we do logging is everything is relative. This is exactly how Sonic Pi works. You described uh, exactly how Sonic Pi does its internal logging systems in time. So when you start a program, you start to run, it starts, it captures the current time, but everything else is relative to that. What you were describing in terms of the language that you're building, I think I might have a really good use case for it too. Like, I was Sweet. planning on writing my own language for this kind of thing, but but since you know you're already working on this, I feel like it is probably exactly what I would need to build to do what I'm working on. So, could you? That's uh, uh, really interesting. So, could you? You talk about patterns through time of these events that you're looking for. Yeah. How do you come up with a pattern you're looking for? How do you describe it? What do these things look like? So I gave an example with a server job kicking off, but what I'm what I'm really doing is the data I'm measuring is a developer activity, developer flows. So for example, if I imagine a developer doing their job, and if I imagine these um, components that we work in are like rooms in space, and I navigate around to these different locations in space as I'm navigating around different code. And so I've got a description of my code model that is divided up into component rooms with a simple like package filter of like if it's if the code's in this package, it's this component, right? Just simple. So could, that, could that room sorry, could that room be described like a URL with this room description of like? Right now I'm doing things at file granularity. So each file is a location and yeah. each component is just a package filter. I'm a Java developer by trade, so turn on your Java brain. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it's almost like URL. So it's like spoo slash bar yeah. slash bash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I've got these component rooms. And as I'm navigating around these different rooms and navigating to different locations, sometimes I'm just looking at something. Sometimes I'm like modifying things. Sometimes I'll be executing some things. So I've got all these different types of activities that are happening in this context of this flow through time in these rooms. And then when I go to different rooms, I imagine this like going across a bridge between these two components, you know, through a hallway to this other place. And so yeah. I have I have a space model where I've got um, these rooms and these locations in place and space. And then I've got a set of coordinates that are based on time. So for example, of uh, the tools that we use for measuring and monitoring idea flow is modeled off of anatomy of a conversation, <laughs> which is why I'm like listening to you going, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> But essentially, I have the developers get in the habit of breaking down their work into intentions. What is my next intention? What am I trying to complete with this next little chunk of work? What am I trying to accomplish? And so you keep a journal of your intentions as you're working. And then in the background, you're kind of navigating through space. 
and then I'm dividing up the work according to these intentions, and all of the relative sequencing of clocks is relative to these start events, these moments in time when I start a new thing. And so I've, I'm basically getting flow feeds that are organizing the, the overall structure and context of a developer's th- flow through the code. And then I'm building a friction model on top of that. So every time you run into something unexpected, you hit a WTF button. And then it starts a kind of collaborative troubleshooting session with your team. And you all kind of work together on, you know, conquering the WTF. And then from that time period, from the moment you see an unexpected observation, whatever it might be, something that causes confusion from where you're at, to the moment that you get that resolved, is you can think of like a TTR metric. Where, where we've got some time Sorry, to resolve TTR mean? Sorry. Uh, time to resolve the WTF, basically. So it's a... <laughs> a TTR WTF. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But it's, it's a, something you can think of uh, friction as having frequency and magnitude over time. And so we've got our flow model, and then we've got our friction model on top of it, and each has relative geometric coordinates. And essentially, this is how I think about ideas flowing, whether they're ideas flowing between our brains and the code, and we're trying to communicate an idea by molding the code like clay to represent an idea in our mind. Or if we're reading the code, reading an idea that is inside the code, it's kind of like moving that idea from inside the code into our head. And we've got flow between us and the software and ideas flowing between. So you can think of a connection with ideas flowing. And then we also have flows between people. And then in both cases, in both contexts, we've also have this friction or these WTF moments that are these points of confusion where we recognize this other human or this other, this computer on the other side of the wire does not understand what we're trying to say. <laughs> I just wrote some code or, or sent out a message into the air, turned a thought in my head into into sounds, as you put it before. And that process sometimes doesn't get understood, right? What you're describing there feels very much like the kind of approach I've taken to developing Sonic Prime uh, as a process. Um, but it also this potentially introduces another dimension, which I don't, don't know if, that, if you considered, but maybe you're interested to merge in, which is when you press that W2F button, it, that might not be the right moment to solve that problem. Maybe because you're in the flow of doing something else. And as you're doing that thing, this thing pops up and you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't do that. But I haven't got time to look at it right now. Because if we do... Yeah, exactly. So, attack, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, this is when I was was practicing uh, live coding. In the early days, I would rewrite it and work, making some music. And it would get my uh, weird uh, error. And then the attack yak would obviously take over the, the, the practice and I'd end up being in Emacs and just hacking and not doing anything that's actually of any use to anybody. Whereas I then soon learned to be able to just, when that thing happens, write it down asynchronously in my notes, put it aside and carry on and then come back to my notes later. But I would have been much better to have exactly the kind of thing you described, which is much more detailed sort of logs, which is context specific about when that thing happened. So I could then go back to that fact and explore what might have gone wrong or um, is that, does that fit in what you're saying or is that yeah I have on the WPS I have a do it later button <laughs> there we go yeah 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 I have an attack yet for this conversation <laughs> so uh, actually there are a few things that I want to talk about I, I um but there, there's one that I just inserted in front of them which is that like that it follows on from something you just said when you are live coding 
to create music, the last thing that you want to happen is is for something you do to crash the whole system, like to crash the whole piece of music. And I'm curious, like, that's interesting to me because that's also, like, strategies for that seem relevant to in-production systems of the non-musical production nature. And I'm curious what kind of design constraints you put into your into Sonic Pi to, to mitigate, you know, one whoopsie bringing the whole, the whole performance to a halt. Good question. I mean, uh, it should also be pointed out that there are a number of uh, performers, live coding performers, who actually do want to crash the system during their performance. So it's not necessarily you want to avoid it all the time. Actually, crashes can be interesting artistically. In fact, there's like, Lang, like, like, like smashing your guitar? Precisely. Ixilang has, a, has a, I can't remember precisely the name of the, the function, but it has a function you can write which will terminate the system in an unknown amount of time in the future. Um, and so uh, you can basically, it will then set a time internally, not tell you about it, and at that point it will then crash. And you can also call the helpline function, I think, to then, uh, if you actually discover that you were doing something interesting, to, to revert that and so it doesn't crash. So <laughs> there are interesting things where the crashing is actually an important part. But yeah, but to answer your question in a more sort of, when I'm performing to a lot of people, I, I typically don't want it to crash um, because I want it, I want people to keep carrying on dancing when it crashes and the dancing stops. And so what I do is I, I uh, spread my bets, essentially, uh, over a number of threads. So first of all, I assume that my system uh, itself, the, the core of the language, uh, doesn't crash. That's, that's, that's a really important part. And then so it only tends to be user code that crashes. And, of course, it's very easy if you're live coding to write, to just typo in, in the code. So user, user crashes are extremely common. Oh, yeah, um, it's a dynamic language. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, even, yeah, yeah, exactly. But even... Exactly. It's the, the runtime errors essentially are, are a very common thing. If you spread your bets, if you have multiple threads, then only the thread that has the error will die, or the threads will continue to execute. So you should always have at least one thread, maybe just doing a kick drum for doing dance music. And then don't change multiple threads simultaneously unless you're really sure what you're doing. I just change them one at a time. Oh, like, like rock climbing, you, you move one limb at a time. Yeah, yeah. Don't do the spring jump move because that pretty could be fatal. <laughs> But sometimes you need to do that, right? Like I'm sure there's some particular points where you need to have, like leap from one point to another to, to make it to make that climb. But yeah, it's a very uh, dangerous move. I think that uh, was I a feel like I think, feel like a lot of programmers try to make that move all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. learning Absolutely. to move one limit at a time is revert, revert. That's what, as I'm getting older. That's I I work in smaller and smaller and smaller chunks. It's really mm. I really I'm so like is this working? Is this working? Is this working all the time? Yeah. Finger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's the feedback, and that's the conversation, right? That's, yeah, absolutely. That's definitely part of the conversation when things go wrong. And actually, I think it's an interesting question as well. I don't know if you've even considered this, but as soon as you're in a, in a performance situation and you've got all these threads which are generating beats and one of them dies because you've made a typo, and then you go, oh, and you can see clearly see the typo, so you fix the typo. How then do you get that thread to restart but in time with everything else? Is one of the, uh, the critical questions. So, like, typically, concurrency doesn't talk about at the same time. It just talks about simultaneously. So, in other words, at the same time would be people clapping, where everyone's claps are all, you just hear one clap, even though there are 10 people clapping. Whereas, simultaneously is like applause, where everyone's just clapping randomly. And you hear lots of different claps all over the place. And so, most programming is of the latter type, where it's just you've just got lots of claps all happening at the same time. But uh, Sonic Pi tries to, to enable users to be able to have all those claps happening exactly, sample accurately at the same time. And so if you were all to... Right, but it's coordinated. Absolutely, temporally coordinated. So if you want to, re, to, to bring that thread back into life, 
It needs to be able to be brought in in time for the threads as well, which is an interesting problem to solve. Yeah, that's cool. So this also goes, like, I was thinking about the logging use case. So we've got, like, a server job that we kick off, and yeah. we're trying to monitor the behavior of the server in time. And you've got, like, a, a start event of when this job was kicked off, and maybe we've got that job kicks off every day, every week, whatever these different times are. And you've got these patterns of memory usage and these memory spikes over time that are relative, right? And I can think of these servers or these instances of the server job going off as a clap. And then we could take all of these instances of these server job kickoffs over time and align them and synchronize and temporally coordinate those so that all the claps happen at the same time. So then we can look for patterns in relative time relative to the start of the kickoff of the job. Sure. I mean, you're basically looking for rhythms, aren't you? Exactly. Looking for rhythms in memory usage from a server job. Nice. While we still have time, there are a few more things that I really want to make sure that we talk about. And one of these is just your work with kids. Can you like tell us about what kinds of sessions you do with kids and, and how you run those and, and what sort of results you've seen? Yeah, how they react. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done a whole different plethora, of different style of, of, of interaction with children. I mean, the, the first stuff was working with a teacher within a school. So these are like 11-year-old children. And that's where the first version of Sonic Pi was born in that classroom, a teacher called Carrie Philbin. And uh, that gave me uh, real insights to the constraints you have when you're working with children and, and anyone learning, particularly. It's not just children. Adults are actually a much more interesting, difficult problem. Children are the easy, the easy problem, typically. Children also force you to consider simplicity, actually, uh, and the educational context as well. And you should think about that everywhere, everything you do, to be honest. And uh, I think it's very easy to, to consider teaching something to an adult and not consider really making it super simple, whereas it's... You wouldn't do that with a child. You always want to simplify it down. But I think that simplification should happen everywhere. But what children also do is they, they provide a, often a curiosity and an interest uh, and an open mind, uh, which makes this stuff much more uh, uh, friction-free, whereas adults often come with closed minds or preconceived ideas, and it's often it can be much harder to, to, to get them to, to see things in new ways. I mean, this is particularly evident when I talk to music teachers I have a much harder time typically than when I talk to computer science teachers because I think that their their cultures are much more closed and, and, and slower to move than, than tech. But going back to kids, the kind of thing I've done is obviously lessons in, in classrooms and uh, schools. So teaching computer science and also teaching music uh, are both at a, a young level, so this is 6 to 11-year-olds and 11 to 16-year-olds. Uh, I've also uh, uh, given workshops in universities uh, and there'll be technical music courses and so using code as a compositional tool, which is, which is not new. This has been going on since the 50s. But Sonic Pi, I guess, brings a, a different tool to the bag and a, a different focus, a focus on simplicity and a focus on education. The most fun things I've done is when I've done things in museums where it's been a, a, a half-term holiday, so it's a children's school holiday. And so, of course, all the ch- children's parents will then fog off their children to the grandparents so they can have a nice day out, do their own thing. So that the grandparents then take their children to the grandchildren to these kind of museum events. And uh, I've been given giving workshops, Sonic Pi workshops, to grandparents and grandchildren combos. And that's absolutely delightful. Um, really nice to see that they're both engaged in making sounds, showing the headphones, and it's, it's a lot of fun. But yeah, the things I've typically done have been very much introductory computer science, introductory uh, live coding, and 
the results have been super exciting in the sense that people can go from nothing to making sounds very, very quickly. And the range of sound which is made across the classrooms, whether they're children which are young or old or, or adults, is, 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 is dramatic to the extent where if you plug in a decent speaker to one of the participants and play their music out to everybody else, it causes everyone to be like, oh, how on earth did you make that sound? And you say, well, go and ask them. And it's sort of uh, increased entropy uh, through showing off the work so people get excited by hearing things that are not the same as theirs. Oh, yeah, through um, amplification. Through amplification, absolutely. And, 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 and also promoting cheating, like don't work in an isolated fashion. You know, like no workplace is like that, although most schools seem to force this kind of ridiculous isolated way of working, which doesn't seem to me to make sense for education or the life in general. But actually just say, go and cheat. If you like their code, go and ask them how they made it you know, and, and take the snippet from it and maybe change the sample or maybe tweak it here and there. This is what programmers do all the time. It's called Stack Overflow. And, uh, you know, so yeah, promoting that kind of uh, behavior. I love that. Encourage people to talk is a critical thing. But what I haven't done yet, and this is what I'm excited to do in the future, is to go past that really beginner stage. So there's a lot of people starting to code and starting to make music, starting to have fun, but moving to a to what I do when I'm, I'm performing, that's still a, that's a pathway which I haven't really figured out yet. And I'm working on the moment. I, I love the idea that this concept that preventing cheating is just the wrong model for the real world because that's how real you know functional teams were and and functional anybody working you know creating in the world works is you build off of other people's work and everybody builds off of other people's yeah. work. I love I love you know glitch if you've messed with glitch at all where you just like go on and, and create a, a coding project on on the web and and it's immediately available online. I love how they have like the the remix button. Where like you can take anybody's project and, and hit the remix button and and you get your own copy of it and and you can totally. mess around with. It. I love the term the fact that they use the terminology remix, which I think remix feels uh, that's just like I feel like that's a wonderful contribution of the electronic music world to just like the discussion of of how we work and how we learn. You know this idea that it's it is normalized. To yeah, take. I believe Scratch, the kids' programming language, was called Scratch because of the DJ metaphor. Oh, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, the idea that taking a piece of someone's work and putting it in an entirely new context is indeed a new piece of work. Yeah, not only a worthwhile thing to do, but like just like that's it's it's a great way to to move the whole world forward. Yeah, it is. And I think it's important yeah. to make a distinction when when we talk about cheating. At least when I talk about cheating, I don't mean breaking the law or breaking rules. I just mean copying, copying, and and asking exactly going in and just yeah cheating in an exam sense where you look at it over someone's shoulder. Right. Right. In, a, in, a, in a professional situation, if, if I get asked to, to do a job and I just sit on my own and then a week later my boss comes and says, have you done the job? And I said, well, I didn't really know how to solve this problem. That's not a professional way of being. I really should, as soon as I run against my first obstacle, go and ask for help. Go and find the relevant experts. Go and talk to them. Also, if I've created a solution, whatever it is, go and find someone who's done something similar and ask them if this is the kind of thing that they like, verify your work with others. Hey, Sam. Um, these are all important things. Before you get going, I just remember, whilst on this one subject, I remember uh, just reading about someone saying there was a, a person in their class who got everyone around her in the exam to write in a really big way so she could read their, their answers and, and cheat in the exams. And, and the person said that it turned out this, this person who did the cheating got better results than everybody because she was able to verify the answers. <laughs> So three people wrote this one and one person wrote this one. So I'm going to go with the one with the more people. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> succeeded, got higher grades. 
because the combination crowdsource the answers. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> how, how does this relate to your superpower of staring at the same problem for days? Good question. I, I, in what in what senses? What, how would you? Do, would I mean, you, you just said you just said if your boss comes back, you know, in a week later, yeah, I didn't understand this. I've been staring at it for days. Oh right, that's I don't have a boss. <laughs> <laughs> but but when you were staring at the same problem for days, do you look for other people who've solved similar problems? Do you go ask people? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, yes, I mean sometimes it, it needs a bit of both. I think you need to are the people to ask, are there not people to ask? Is it yeah, absolutely. I think you need you need to do both of those things. But yes, I think yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, are, if there are other people to collaborate with on the specific thing you're working on and you're allowed to, then yes, definitely do that. But that, they're not always possible. Right. At some point, and this is, I guess, where PhDs come from, you get to the edge of completed research. And yeah, that- or edge of people's interests as well. Like people will say, well, that's not interesting to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's where you get a problem that's worth staring at for days because no one else has found the answer to that problem. Precisely. Yeah. But it's not like school. You don't have a whole group of people being asked to do the same thing. Yes. <laughs> and you're also doing something that's meaningful to you, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and that will give you more motivation to continue. Yeah. And that's, then, what I've, that's what I say. That's what I've observed in children in schools is when you, when you put something to them, a task which is meaningful to them, they're far more engaged, much more deeply engaged. Music has meaning to everyone. Music is a great way of achieving that. Yes. Does music make it easier to learn to code, or does code make it easier to learn to make music? Well, I could, I could be devil advocate and say, what is the difference between music and code? Mm. Obviously, there are fundamental differences in the sense that easily perceive a difference, but actually in their core, music is a notation for, it can be perceived as being a notation for the interaction with, with instruments, but also it's actually a sociological phenomenon as well, like it's a mm. social thing. So it really depends on what you mean by music. Um, so you're making the code of Talking about a composition in a Western score with dots and lines and squiggles. Like, what do you mean by music? Like Indian style music, where you're learning from a master who's learned from their master and their master, and and this is this is a behaviour which is passed on through observation, not through any formal writing. Like this, yeah, there's lots of different styles of, of, of conceiving music. That's a good point. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing like they're they're Monty Python, uh, <laughs> <laughs> African or European swallow. <laughs> I think music is a really great metaphor for all the patterns that happen when we're working. Like I started off my career, like wanting to be a singer songwriter and music was my whole life. And it wasn't until I started to get a feel for what a career in music would be like that I discovered programming like after that point. But, but before then it's like my whole life was music and the way that I thought about the world and saw everything was music and so when I got into software, I was all distraught at first with not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life anymore. My boyfriend at the time, he thought it'd be fun to cheer me up and take a class together. And he was kind of a hardware geeky type. So he's looking through the class catalog and he's like, ooh, x86 assembly, that sounds fun. And I mean, I didn't even know any other programming languages existed. My only experience with computers at this point was like playing King's Quest in high school. And I got into this class and I was like, oh, this is kind of like programming my TI-85 in math class. You know, I've got some basic instructions. I can do that. And I started thinking about stitching programs together as stitching music together. And then I had these procedures that were little musical phrases, and then I could weave them all together. And I started writing the game Breakout 
completely in assembly, not knowing, you know, anything else, just reams and reams of assembly code. Once I found interrupts and I realized, you know, I can switch to graphics mode and I can make the PC speaker beep and all these things. I just got so excited about the potential. I showed my teacher what I was working on and he's like, um, why don't you just keep going with that? Show me what you're working on and you get an A. <laughs> I'm like, I like this class, right? This is, this is the way to do school. And, but that's when it really hit me. You know, I can create anything. I can dream. You know, I can create any crazy idea in my head that I can translate into code that I can communicate to a machine that I can translate music into this notation for interacting with this new kind of instrument I could bring to life. I just had to learn how to, how to speak, speak the language, right? Absolutely. And you know what the side effects of the computer can do? Like making sound is one of the examples we gave. And yeah, and there's lots of other flashing lights or all sorts of crazy things. And, and knowing that repertoire of side effects will then give you a, a voice, a vocabulary that you can communicate through. And I think... In the same way that music needs to be free. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it's like it wants to be free. It wants to be remixed together. I feel like software has a bit of that same kind of core of like, once we take our ideas and figure out how to translate them into code, how to translate them into language, remixing them together is the art. It's like the jazz age of our generation, right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and uh, when we talk about these event streams and immutability and total ordering, when I see them as sort of data lifts, once you've got a sort of a, a partial part of one of those event logs, and you call it a data lift, I can give it a name, a UUID, perhaps on the hash of its, of its totality, and we can then share that through history. You know, and then you can then take that data lift, you can modify it, and if you link back to the original one, then you have this sort of path of, of uh, provenance so you can see where things were mixed. And from where and when, and I'll trace it back nicely. Which is what's missing in cheating. The provenance. Yes, I think that's really important. Exactly. It's when people take it and then say, this is my work. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's illegal, right? In many, in many cases, breaking the rules. But yes, there's like social rules, I guess, aren't there? Social contracts. And I guess, so going back to your point earlier about uh, code being rhythmical, so there's two things in there. One is that, yeah, there's, there are a lot of analogies of music which make teaching computer science really, really simple and fun. But also the, the, the pure rhythmicality of, of computers is also interesting. I remember reading about really, really old computers in the 60s um, where they were operating so slowly, you could actually physically hear the computers operating almost like machines. And when that operation would get into, say, a, a bad loop, you could be able to sort of put your ear on, ear on the machine and hear it. And it was repetitive, something like this. And you'd be able to, ah, I can now hear that that program's in a bad loop. And then know what the kind of problems to solve. So people would debug programs by simply listening to the hardware, things also are interesting musically. Wow. I wonder if we could do something similar to, I'm just imagining if I could make patterns that I do when I'm coding make sounds, if I could like listen to the sounds of the instruments of my developers and my organization, like if you could summarize it all into a sound signal, you could probably listen to whatever normal is for your organization. That would I mean, be yeah, that's, theoretically, that's totally interesting and possible. I mean, they're, they're, was, I think it was Financial Times about three weeks ago made a little small video where they took data about trading and then converted it to music to then be able to try and perceive the patterns as you describe. I think that, the, and, and it, it, was, it was interesting, but to, I, I assumed looking at the graph is going to be much more high bandwidth way of getting the information. 
But I, I think the general problem is is that it's very easy as a programmer to take data in one domain and map it to data in another domain. That's trivial for most programmers to be able to do. The really hard problem is to be able to take meaning from one domain and map it to meaning in the other domain. And that's the hard part. So it's, it's quite easy to build like an Eno-esque-like sound device, which takes any event and then finds the appropriate pentatonic scale notes. And it will just sound beautiful, like wind chimes. But it would be very hard then to then take that audio and be able to perceive the meaning from the original source. And that, that tends to be the hard thing. So if you can find a way to take you know, your data and turn it into meaningful music, where the, the music meaning is something you can perceive and understand, that would be amazing. But I think, I imagine that would take a lot of training and learning to be able to build that vocabulary, that sonic vocabulary to be able to, to map that in the, in the sufficient level for it to be more useful than current forms of data formats. To like acquire meaning associated with the sounds that corresponds in some way to the meaning in the logs. Precisely, exactly. So, I mean, ideally you take the information you're, you're, you're reading or you're observing and then you then generate meaning from that. So I can see from a graph that's going up, there's, there's, a, there's an upward trend. And obviously that's a very, very, very simple basic example, but obviously much more sophisticated examples. But you want to be able to take the audio and somehow derive similar kinds of quality of meaning from just listening to the audio. That can be hard. I mean, there are there are shops um, that have tried the experiment of taking their uh, production metrics and basically piping them, those into synthesizers and having some kind of like droning, not drone, but you know, so like a, a ambient ambient soundscape generated by yeah. their logging by their their metrics and you know anomaly and, and using detection right anomaly detection because that's that's the amazing thing is that like. With, with sound and, and with human brains is that when you can turn it into something like that, we're super good at picking out when things are, are changing. Like, you know, I used to be able to have a strong sense of like what my computer was up to based on the hard drive noises. Was it useful for them? Did they say that we did it? No, it never became widespread. And it would be interesting to find out. Like normal, not normal. What's that? The best you're going to get there is normal, not normal. Right. It's not going to tell you what's happening. But you've got to listen to it all the time in the background. Yeah. I think the <sighs> problem there is the same thing that we've been, there's no shared language of meaning that transcends domains in that context. So if I have one sort of server speaking a certain language in logging or, or these type of events, whatever metrics they're tracking, if we think about a sound as representing a meaning, then what we need in order to pull that off is a clear set of meanings that translate across domains in, in a way. And I mean, I, I think it's a solvable problem, but it's like you put noise into a system and the audio you get out is noise, right? <laughs> and yeah. And essentially, that that core hard problem of mapping meaning from one domain to meaning in another is the abstraction to solve as the abstraction of communication itself, right? I mean, it's essentially... The voice is the same, isn't it? Yeah. Is, uh, wow, my mind is so blown from this conversation. <laughs> Uh, we need to get to reflection soon, but before we get there, there's one other thing that I really want to talk about. Sam, you had a really big performance recently. Can you tell us about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, that was amazing. Sonic Pi, obviously, is used by a lot of kids everywhere, which is great. And uh, there was uh, a music hub, so it's an organization in, in London, which helps a bunch of schools in its vicinity set up a whole, a really very ambitious project called Convo, where they got a thousand kids who are singing, playing traditional instruments, clapping, drums, all to perform in this place called the Royal Albert Hall, which is this beautiful, massive performance venue in London. It's absolutely it's amazing. And they covered uh, past, present, and future music. That was the, the theme of the, of the performance. So they started off with a bird song, 
and, and, and tapping and rhythmical uh, gestures to then drumming patterns to then folk music and, and then to pop music and, and the future music. And uh, it was so ambitious. It, they brought together all these children, often with orchestras that they'd only created three years prior. So everyone was really very, it's all very nascent, not just the, the children, but all the organizers. Uh, and uh, the composition was by uh, a wonderful composer called Charles Harding. She did an, a really amazing job of, of making something that was both sufficiently interesting to listen to, but also not so complicated that you had to be a professional performer to be able to perform. Although there were quite demanding aspects of the piece. And part of that, a small cog in all those glorious wheels, was, uh, especially for the future part of, of the music, was a live coding part. So I worked... Uh, with two children who have been studying Sonic Pi for the last year at the Lyrics. So they run this weekly after-school course. And that is led by uh, a lady called Jana Gela, And she's a, a, a pop artist under the name Jilden. And uh, she has been teaching them Sonic Pi. And she selected two of these students to, to perform in the, in the final piece. And we all got together over a series of practice sessions, took one of Charlotte's pieces and converted it to code and also... Uh, the children wrote their own code, uh, which was the stuff that they wanted to sound, how, how the rhythms they wanted to create. And I also modified things to make it very simple for them to actually write out rhythms and, and patterns. And we just got on stage and we performed alongside a thousand other kids. It was just phenomenal. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was such a, a beautiful experience to have the children be the... Because essentially, I all I did was to make sure things didn't really go wrong. Uh, and stood there and, and did, made a few gentle tweaks, but really, the majority of the performances was, was by the two children and, and Janet. Um, and so that was just a glorious thing to, to be part of and to, to see happen. And even the mayor of London was tweeting about Sonic Pi Code on this big screen in the Royal Albert Hall. That is absolutely amazing. What I, what I get excited about, really, is that most people in the world, I don't think, have seen real code. Most people who have seen or heard of coding have seen it on the te- TV or in films. And we all know how ludicrous the programming is. And I'm just going to get a uh, a Java applet to uh, uh, decrypt my uh, Kerberos uh, uh, Nginx cluster. I mean, that, that probably sounds completely sensible to, to non-programmers. So, yeah, so here is an example in the Royal Pool where, where people are actually seeing real, actual code that was really executing and generating the sounds they were hearing as well. So uh, it was really interesting not just to show people that code is creative, but to give people credible, uh, actual, real perception of real code executing. And it doesn't have to be this weird thing that only businesses use to make rich people richer. I mean, it can actually be a tool for, for expressing yourself as a human and, and for getting people to get together and celebrate and communicate together in new ways, essentially. That is absolutely beautiful. I think that's probably a great note to uh, to move to reflections on. I have one. One thing that you said early, Sam, was that everything is a conversation and we have to ask, how can I test that they understand? I suspect your language based on logging is about this. It's about how do I know it works before I make it work? But you said, when you're talking to humans, you spend a lot of time checking for understanding. And that's something I believe that you spend a lot of time checking for understanding. You look at whether the language you've written, whether the presentation you've given, whether that really communicated something to people and whether they could keep going with it, whether it really gave them a power or just a smile. That's great and awesome and also one of your superpowers. And if you want to become a better coder, yeah, check for understanding, not Mm. just with the computers, but with people. People, definitely, yes. 
For my reflection, uh, I'm still just stuck on the remix culture piece of this conversation. I think that's just a really, really powerful uh, concept and a great thing to normalize. We started this conversation talking about superpowers like staying with the problem, patience and delayed gratification, programming as a form of communication, and everything is conversation. And the other thing I'm hearing in this is everything is music and music is conversation. And I feel like this superpower of programming as a form of communication, we really got to feel for what that means just by seeing that demonstrated of just using software as a metaphor to describe these everyday things that happen in our jobs and our, in our servers, these, these things we observe in the world and the humans around us. And when we're trying to communicate an idea from one brain to another brain, if we can use our software skills, our programming skills as a tool to bring clarity to the ideas we're trying to communicate, software becomes a metaphor for so many things. And there's so much power in that. Everything is conversation. Sam, what about you? It's a very difficult one. I feel like I'm in an echo chamber in the sense a lot of things I'm saying everyone's agreeing with and it's all very positively enforced. And there's not, there hasn't been enough uh, friction, uh, fight back to then. Uh, well, well, we did invite you kind of for, for a reason. <laughs> and it's because yeah. you're right. Oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, so uh, to me, I guess that uh, the most poignant thing of the conversation that I'm going to be thinking about going further is uh, Janelle's point about the fact that there is value in what I'm saying beyond just basic music. Actually, she's seeing very, working and asking similar questions herself in her own way, which are very, very closely related to mine, but in a much more professional programming context, whereas I'm in this weird artistic context. And it's very easy for people to think that what I'm doing is weird and esoteric. But actually, there, there are some really interesting, compelling use cases uh, for, for thinking about programming rhythmically uh, and, and pattern detect- rhythmic pattern detection, I think, I guess, is those things. And, and yeah, to, to hear somebody who's actually working with this in a professional context uh, talking about it in such a way is, is uh, really inspiring for me. And uh, we'll, uh, we'd love to have that conversation further. Yay, me too. Yay. Sam, uh, where can people find more about all the stuff that you do and, and just your stuff online? Google Sam Aaron, two A's, R-O-N, probably the easiest thing. Uh, Sonic Pi, that's P-I, mathematical Pi, like Raspberry Pi. So they, they came from, Sonic Pi was developed first from the Raspberry Pi, but obviously now it's cross-platform, works on Windows and Mac. So Google for Sonic Pi. And uh, the best place to ask questions and to get more information about Sonic Pi in particular uh, is the, the Sonic Pi forums in Thread. Um, and there's a link to that on the Sonic Pi website. And then, of course, then follow me on Twitter and Instagram if you want to see more of the personal things I'm doing, of course. But if you're just interested in the general thing I'm talking about, the projects, then Google for Sonic Pi and have a play. I highly recommend following Sam on Instagram. He is one of the few programmers I know who is an actual rock star. <laughs> and find Sam on Patreon because he's loves academia. And is now doing this incredibly awesome Sonic Pi work and teaching kids and spreading coding and music and this joy of expression around the world with our support. So patreon.com slash Sam Aaron, S-A-M-A-A-R-O-N. And speaking of Patreon. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Technically, you could also support Greater Than Code, but today, yeah, support Sam. Absolutely. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight and an honor to, to have this conversation. I wish it wouldn't stop, to be honest. Well, it doesn't have to. Join us on the Greater Than Code Slack channel. <laughs> <laughs>
Which people can access how? If you make any donation to the Greater Than Code Patreon, you will get an invitation to the Greater Than Code Slack team, where we have very nice, fairly low volume, but high interest conversations. Yes. We always seem to bring it around to that. Well, it's important. It is important because it lets this podcast continue and it lets us introduce more people to you. 